This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was a story that caused a quick backlash and was resolved almost immediately. Dog owners were barking mad about City of Toronto signs that went up in a couple of off-leash parks, warning that excessive barking will not be tolerated. The signs were taken down in less than a day, as city staff admitted they were off the mark with this one. Libby talked about the silly signs and the quick resolution when she was joined by our two into the town panel, former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, Variety Village CEO Karen Stintz, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor at Blog TO, which broke the story. It's like posting a no laughter sign at a comedy club. Like, it, there are dogs around. There is going to be barking. Um, I, I think that people just kind of glommed onto this story and held it up as an example of bureaucracy gone mad. Um, but... I do understand also there are a lot of issues historically involving the dog park community, dog owners and other members of the community. So um, like you said, it kind of tapped into a nerve there. But I, I like also, it's great that it was solved so quickly too. Like when does the city ever change something that fast? But I want to point and out- And take responsibility take saying this, we we missed the mark on this. Right? But we had um, a reader send us a photo this morning at BlogTO. Um, a similar sign already exists in Ellen Gardens Park. It has for years. So the sign that um, was of question this week was in St. Andrew's Park. It was like uh, Adelaide, Spadina area. Um, but there have been others in the city apparently. Uh, not really sure why or how the city expects people to stop their dogs from from vocalizing, from barking. But um, we know, at least in this case of the most recent one, it was in response to complaints about too many dogs. Too many well, dogs being loud. Carrot. This is honestly, the dog park issue is, a, is, is, is one of the hottest municipal councilor issues that you can, it's one of the hottest potatoes you can hold. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was at Ledbury Park, there was a petition brought forward to install an off-leash dog park at the park you know, away from where the kids played, away from the skating rink, um, and in a sort of cul-de-sac area. So we went forward with it. Well, no sooner did we go forward with it when people called my house on a regular basis because they were the neighbors that backed their fences, were uh, backing onto where the off-leash park now was. And there was, you know, noise and people and dogs and ruckus and upset and, oh, my goodness. So, yeah, we had to move the dog park short of, I think the dog park was only there for less than two months before we moved it because it was just creating so much tension in the neighborhood. David, was this an issue when you were the mayor? No, not, well, from time to time. The dogs have been barking for as long as we've had dogs. (laughs) Uh, So that bothers some people. I think it's quite impressive on the part of the city staff that they thought they could actually stop dogs from barking. Uh, So I was impressed. I I hope they keep the sign. Don't don't destroy the sign. It, it, it should be uh, somewhere hung in City Hall. Just a reminder of how silly it can get. I think I have to say that we've learned far better manners about dogs and people in the past number of years than we ever did before. Um, and, that, and that started with the Poop and Scoop program, all of those things. So actually, it's one area of progress that we've made, uh, I think, at, at, at least from, from my own 
limited experience. Never mind the dogs, it's the people. And, and if it gets to dog poisonings and altercations and throwing poop on a lawn, I mean, that is uh, not very civil. No, it's not very civil and it's not very often. Uh, I, I, it, seem, it, it, it seems to me that dog issues I used to regard as something that people could get their arms around and therefore uh, there was a more talk than, than, than harm done by it. But on the other hand, I read Keenan's uh, uh, column. He, he's, a, he's a really good writer in my, in my judgment. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's, uh, he's more right than I thought he, thought he, thought he was. But no, I, uh, we've got so many problems in the city that need to be dealt with. And I, and I think we, we can talk about dogs. Everybody's an expert on dogs. Okay, well, Karen, uh, one of the things it said about dogs is that it's the one issue that counselors don't even want to get involved with. Is that right? Or oh, no question about it. No question about it. Honestly, when someone calls about a dog park issue, you just pretend you you're like, beep, please leave a message. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, and the issue, you know, because I live in Midtown, and there's a lot of dogs in Midtown and and limited parks and lots of kids. And, uh, you know, I think the key that, you know, everyone's kind of talked around is, you know, good manners. And when dog owners have good manners, everything works out. You know, when you go to the park at 6 in the morning and you're gone by 7.30, everything's fine. When you're there on a Saturday afternoon and you let your dog off leash at Eglinton Park during the kids' soccer practice, then you're a bozo and then that sets people off, and (laughs) rightly so. Variety Village CEO Karen Stintz, former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, and Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor at Blog TO. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's been three weeks since John Tory stepped down as Toronto's mayor after he admitted to a relationship with a former staffer in his office. Since then, Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey has taken over and will handle the mayor's duties until the next mayor is elected in a by-election June 26th. Libby was joined by Deputy Mayor McKelvey on Thursday. Fight Back's first conversation with her since she took over over. It is going really well. Uh, I was, you know, of course, a little worried about coming in on the Tuesday after family day and that the office would be deserted and no one would show up. But everybody came in, everybody rolled up their sleeves and they've been hard at work for the people of Toronto. Is there anything that you have found since doing this for the last few weeks that surprised you or, uh, yeah, that surprised you or took you aback? No, I wouldn't say there was, but I will say that in my previous role as counselor, you know, I focused really in depth on, you know, three key issues. So the ravine strategy, the climate action plan and Scarborough transit. So the one big transition is, of course, trying to learn all the files that are citywide and uh, expand really the breadth of of what I do here at City Hall. But uh, it's definitely been uh, a learning curve, but everybody has just been really, uh, really spectacular at getting me up to speed on the files. And uh, I've really enjoyed meeting a lot of people in the public service that I haven't met with before. Okay, so you sent this open letter to the senior levels of government asking them or calling on them to help fill that gap. Uh, Would you see that as the biggest priority? I absolutely do see that as the biggest priority. I would very much like to leave the city in a good fiscal state for the next mayor when he or she arrives on uh, June 26th. Um, but in addition to that, I think it's really just business as usual at City Hall, making sure that we continue to deliver on our city building priorities, that we consider uh, can 
continue to get transit built to expand our public transit, make sure really the nuts and bolts uh, city services we deliver on continue to be delivered and uh, focus on community safety. So with that open letter, uh, have you heard back from any of the levels of government? Have they acknowledged it in any way? We haven't yet, uh, but we are working on trying to book meetings with both levels of government to start to go through its contents. Uh, this is really about dealing with our short-term financial pressures that we have. Uh, we still have outstanding amounts from both last year as well as this year. Uh, and then the, the next part will be really starting the to turn the conversation towards a new fiscal deal for municipalities, not just the city of Toronto, but all municipalities. And we know that our current revenue tools aren't enough. And uh, we know that uh, when Canada was formed 156 years ago, we didn't envision a city of 3 million people and uh, the source of needs that a big city like that would have. Does it disturb you that you haven't heard back from them? No, we just sent it on Monday and, you know, we'll be, it takes some time for these things to move through the chains of bureaucracy. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to them, the the city's financial state, uh, and I'm sure that uh, we can have some very constructive conversations and start to find a, a way forward together. You know, you're talking about revenue tools. I was just talking uh, about that with our tune into the town panel. And I mean, it's pretty clear this government has hampered any kind of autonomy Toronto might have had. And it's pretty clear that that's what they intend to do in the future. So what kind of strategy do you have in the face of that? Well, we have uh, a report that will be coming to Council about uh, our long-term financial frameworks um, and looking at the revenue tools that are available to us. We know that no single one of those revenue tools alone can can get us out of the situation that we're in. I think a part of the, the bigger conversation as well is looking at what are we funding as a city? And a lot of that is things that fall under the purview of the provincial government. So um, I think there's a, a conversation around revenue tools, but also maybe a conversation around what it what services the city is providing providing that perhaps maybe the province should be considering either funding or delivering themselves. Anything else you would like to leave us with? No, just uh, I'm really looking forward to to serving the people of Toronto over the next four months. Um, I would also like to thank all the Toronto residents that have really shown me a lot of support at this time. And I know that it is a big office and there are big shoes to fill and uh I know I have to do it my own way, but I'm certainly uh, not afraid of hard work, and I look forward to working for the people of Toronto. Toronto's Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Lou in Mississauga phoned about his recent experience in a hospital emergency room. I had a, a simple uh, bicycle injury where uh, I ended up uh, falling off my bike. I hit my head and uh, they recommended that I uh, go to a hospital and get checked out. Um, I got there at 6 p.m. and uh, I was there until 7 a.m. Right. So it, it was it was 
and and the rooms were all full. Like there was no, uh, I don't know if it was availability or what the situation was, but it was uh, extremely uh, frustrating being there for uh, you know thirteen hours. June in Toronto also called about her visit to a hospital ER. Two or three weeks ago, I was doing errands and. I suddenly was seized with horrible dizziness and throwing up in the car. It was, um, and, and because I thought I detected, uh, blood in the, in, um, vomit, I thought I should go to emergency, which I did. And it was like a zoo. Um, it was an hour or more before we even were seen by a triage nurse. It was 12 hours from the time we arrived until the time we left. The experience, like I said, once once I was seen, it was was lovely. Right. Uh, but the waiting time is it's wild. It's just there were children in there. Like I don't know how young mothers with children managed it. Yeah. Quite honestly. And now, fightbacks knockout call of the week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is June in Mississauga, who phoned about a dilemma facing many older Canadians. As a um, senior who has to cook for one um, and try to make your dinners um, palatable and get the proper nutrition, I find this very difficult when you shop because all of this two-for-one sale is the worst thing that they could do, um, in my mind, for seniors who cook for one. Um, But I did go shopping yesterday, and I was pleased to find in a no-frills store um, 375 grams of lean ground beef for $3. It was just the right size of package that I could probably get three meals out of it. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer has released a special health care report saying the province is expected to be short 33,000 nurses and personal support workers in five years. In addition, the report reveals the government will be short $21 billion to cover its commitments to expand hospitals, long-term care, and home care. The FAO report followed a report by Ontario's patient ombudsman who revealed 
revealed complaints in 2021-22 increased by 43%, and many of them were related to a lack of sensitivity by healthcare workers toward patients in hospital emergency rooms. The medical record panel weighed in on both reports when they joined me Wednesday. Dr. Malcolm Moore is a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Dr. Alyssa Naiman is a family physician and founder and medical director of the Medical Station in Toronto. And Dr. Fahad Razak is an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. You know, it's really damning in terms of the demand in the system relative to its capacity. And that demand has exceeded capacity across multiple sectors, whether it is pediatric care or adult care, the number of nurses needed, personal support workers. And you've seen, for example, many healthcare workers retiring much earlier than expected. That is the pressures that they are feeling. And those pressures manifest in things like early retirements, but also in not being sensitive to the needs of patients. I I think we've all been there in the healthcare system where the pressures are enormous, uh, we're understaffed, the volumes of patients are going up, and you're not your best self sometimes, I have to say. It's happened to me. I feel terrible about it. I think it's probably happened to many of my colleagues, and I'm frankly not surprised. It is putting a very important human face on the pressures that we're experiencing in the system. Uh, I I think that we need to take in, in, in when you take these two reports together, the patient ombudsman report, and now the the report from the financial office, these are two official agencies providing a very clear picture of the cracks that have formed now and the fact that they're probably going to get worse, not better in the years to come because of the demographic trends that we've already talked about in aging population. So this is a very, very serious call to action, I think, and we really need to see some details that are going to address the scope of the problem. I really appreciate the way you uh, put that into words, Dr. Razak, because, I mean, regardless of what we all do, if you're very busy at work, you don't tend to have a whole lot of time for small talk, and you may not be as sensitive uh, to people you're interacting with because you're trying to get your job done. So, Dr. Naiman, this just seems to be human nature. Absolutely. I think it's three years of burnout um, since the time of the pandemic and the demands that are placed amongst healthcare workers has just skyrocketed and there's just so much to do and you exist within the system and the system is fractured and the system is breaking down. People come in, they're very vulnerable, they're in pain, they're scared and you just don't have the ability to cope and to help people in the manner that you would if you had the supports that were in place. It's, it's really very challenging for people to work these days. Dr. Moore, would you like to add to um, the conversation here about the patient ombudsman and his report and, and observations? Well, you know, I, I think we're, we're all super busy, yeah, but that doesn't excuse bad behavior, to be honest with you. And uh, my sense, because, we, you know, we're all, we all work in the health system, but we also all access the healthcare system. I would have to say the biggest challenge in emergency is really the wait times. And what I hear from my patients uh, is that they find that the waiting, the amount of time they have to wait in emergencies is very stressful. And the, typically the comment is that the people who dealt with them were wonderful. Uh, but and they appreciate. I think the patients appreciate how busy the staff are, and so I I, I don't think it's a systemic problem. Uh, obviously, there are individuals who maybe be disrespectful for patients, but I don't think I would say it's a general phenomenon. So I actually echoes what Dr. Moore said, which is that 
the wait in, in some te- in some ways is the most difficult part of the process. And by the time you go through that wait, everyone is on edge. Um, the, the staff on the other end are often rushed, but the the person who is suffering has been now waiting for an incredibly long period of time. And I do think that it really, you know, one of the things about this this the fiscal office uh, accountability report that came out. It started to put some numbers to it. It, it, it you know, it, it, it described the wait times over 20 hours, 145 uh, unplanned emergency room visits. But that data is actually not very easy to get. I do think that part of what I'd like to see in this discussion, or what what happens uh, going forward, is that some of these numbers are reported more openly. Like after all, we are as taxpayers paying for this system. I think there should be some public reporting around this, so we can get a sense of how each of these areas is hopefully improving, but also the variability, because some of the most affected areas are the smaller towns within the province. And I don't think we have an accurate picture of that right now. We're getting the human stories like your callers, but I think we need some data to really give us a sense of the scope of the problem and hopefully some way to track improvement over time. Dr. Fahad Razak, internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. Dr. Malcolm Moore, medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. And Dr. Alyssa Naiman, family physician and founder and medical director of the medical station in Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Wednesday was International Women's Day. We marked the occasion on Fight Back by speaking with two Canadian women leaders who are not only prominent for their work in their fields, but also for advocating for our more diverse communities. Canadian Senator Salma Atalajan and Ontario NDP MPP Kristen Wong-Tam, who represents Toronto Centre. While filling in for Libby, I asked Kristen first about the women who've had a positive impact on her journey. Oh, goodness. Um, You know, there's just been so many extraordinary individuals. Um, I'm going to start with my mother. Uh, My mother has a grade six education. Uh, She has only no physical labor, has always worked uh, and toiled in factories. Um, And uh, and she has demonstrated uh, throughout my life that if you have one adult, one caring parent, um, and of course, we want more than than one caring adult uh, in every child's life. But if you have that one, uh, you know, you will be uh, shared with a lot of love. Uh, they will tell you that you can do anything. And my mom uh, and my dad, to be quite honest, both did that for me. Um, but I would never be where I am without the love and support of my parents, um, especially my mother. Um, so I know that, you know, I stand today as a member of provincial parliament uh, in the most diverse riding in, in Canada, but I didn't get here without standing on the shoulders of giants and giant women who came before me. So I'm internally grateful that I benefit from their work. And now it's my job. I hope that I can do it as well as they did, but to make sure that I uplift others now. And our Canadian senator, Salma Atalajan, has been waiting on the line. Tell us the story of uh, how you began and how you made your way to the Canadian Senate. You know, I'm uh, an immigrant. I I came to Canada in 1980, and um, I came from a home that was full of people. And I came here, and the loneliness hit me, and I thought, okay, I have to do something about this. So I went out and I got a job, part-time job in the school next to me just to sort of be out and, you know, uh, mingle with, uh, you know, people and get to know people. And um, eventually I was introduced to, you know, the Conservative Party. They liked me. And um, the rest, I guess, you know, I I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be um, appointed to the Senate. Um, it's, It's the most amazing place to 
working. And even now, as I'm walking up, I, you know, to the Senate chamber, I say, wow, how lucky am I? And before I let you go, uh, the theme for this year's International Women's Day is embrace equity. And what does that mean to you? As a woman and as a woman with two young daughters, um, we have many challenges and, and more so in, in, in the racialized com- uh, community. Women long to be treated equally and it can be done. It is done. And, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, next year's theme will be something more, more positive. You know, yeah. we're talking about equity. Um, it, it's not a conversation we should be having in 2023 because... Um, and and I I see it especially in, in and here as I, I speak to you as a Muslim woman, even even when I decided to run, I had men telling me, "Oh, why are you doing this?" Men who wouldn't take my flyers um, because they said a woman should not be going outside uh, of the home. But you did. <laughs> I did. Yes. And and the same men now come to me <laughs> with a big smile and how happy they are <laughs> because I'm in a certain position. A study that looks at home life for Canadian women and men tells us a lot about where we're at when it comes to embracing equity. Joining us to discuss, Oksana Kiszczuk, Director of Strategy and Insights at Abacus Data. Tell us about your research and your findings. So what we found was that women are, uh, as they continue to enter the workforce, more and more are still largely responsible for a lot of the work in the home, such as things like cooking, cleaning, grocery shopping, parenting, um, while their partners don't pick up um, near the same level of, of work on, on that. And these sort of what we call maybe pink tasks or tasks that were traditionally um, sort of done by, by women um, are also things that um, carry over in the workplace too. So things like uh, taking notes or taking care of social responsibilities and, and making the team feel united are tasks that uh, typically fall to women a lot more than men in the workplace, too. The sort of more fascinating piece uh, for me was that um, as sort of women maybe take on the role of a primary income earner and sort of that the out-of-the-house responsibility a little bit more, they're still picking up a little bit more of, of the tasks at home um, than maybe they otherwise want to. So certainly lots of progress being made, um, but, but some interesting results nonetheless. Oksana Kiszczuk, Director, Strategy and Insights at Abacus Data, and before her, Canadian Senator Salma Atalajan and Ontario NDP MPP Kristen Wong-Tam. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, excessive barking apparently will be tolerated in dog parks. Toronto's Story of the Week is coming up next. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.